This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today I will be talking with Professor Alexander Wanoska about his new book entitled Military Alliances in the 21st Century. Professor Wanoska is an associate professor in international relations at the University of Waterloo. He studies alliance politics, theories of war, and European security. He is also the author of Atomic Assurance, the Alliance Politics of Nuclear Proliferation, and that's out from Cornell University Press. Thank you, Professor Wanoska, for being here today. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. I should make a quick note. I'm actually an assistant professor just so that my employer does not think that I've got tenure for uh, reasons that are unclear to anyone. So with that said, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak about uh, my book. Yes, apologies that I do not have the ability to tenure you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of how you came to write this book? Sure. So I am, as you said, an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo. I do work on international security issues, more or less with regards to alliance politics with a focus on Central Eastern European security affairs. I've been working on alliance politics since my days as a PhD student at Princeton University, gotten very interested in how countries design their security commitments uh, to other countries and how countries react when those receive security commitments look to be uh, rather fragile or under uh, stress. I think that there's still a lot that we don't really understand. So it's been my career's work to try to figure out exactly how these organizations work. And so I had one book, as you mentioned, that uh, looks at how the United States has crafted its uh, force posture in a way that tries to reassure its treaty allies and how sometimes things happen to those alliances such that those allies that benefit otherwise from those received commitments uh, might in fact start entertaining, at the very least, the notion that they should get nuclear weapons. And so that book is a challenge of sorts to some of the conventional wisdom that's appeared in the last 10 or so years that alliances, military alliances specifically, are really good at restraining the nuclear ambitions of countries. I think that's somewhat true, but it needs to be heavily caveated 
And indeed, if we look at specific case histories like Germany, Japan, and South Korea in the Cold War, there's much um, uh, that is complicated and certainly problematizes the sorts of narratives that are very much in vogue these days. So uh, I more or less approach these sorts of issues with an eye towards how countries craft security cooperation with one another. Uh, I think it's an exciting um, branch of study, one that certainly has seen a lot of good work appear recently. And so I'm very excited to uh, work in this tradition and to hopefully push the envelope, so to speak, in terms of our understanding and to make new arguments that could either be tested or critiqued by others. Uh, yeah, so you kind of just laid out that, um, I guess, military or your argument in your previous book was that, um, if I got this correctly, that military alliances aren't necessarily um, stopping nuclear proliferation. Um, but sort of what, so if not that, what makes military alliances different from other forms of alliances among nations? So I think the core distinction that we can make between military alliances or other forms of international organization is that ultimately they're about the use of force, specifically the promise to use force on behalf of another country. And because international politics is characterized by the lack of world government that can make rules and force those rules and punish rule breakers, there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether countries would fulfill those promises, especially because fighting a war is simply much more expensive than writing down a treaty and saying that, yes, indeed, during a militarized crisis, a state will come to your aid. Uh, I think uh, that creates a lot of puzzling behaviors because this is not uh, an environment conducive to such promise keeping. And so it's in my view, unsurprising that we see lots of controversy develop in the ranks of NATO or any really um, other uh, military alliance that exists con- you know, right now or even historically. I think uh, these sorts of controversies that typically uh, rack uh, the operation of military alliances are, are fairly common and they're common precisely because of the nature of international politics. And and you do an excellent job of tracing the historiography of like military alliances um, in international relations um, literature. Can you kind of outline what some scholars posit how those military alliances initially form? Sure. So I, I just want to step back because I think I, I do want to say that there has been a lot of work on alliance politics in the field of fields of political science and international relations. Um, And a lot of that work tends to focus on rather linear models or theoretical understandings of how these things operate. And I think that's very useful because after all, these sorts of models can help simplify reality and generate generalizable observations about the world. But I guess I came to this book thinking that some of these generalizations are a bit problematic and that the standard narratives of various aspects of alliance management uh, leave a lot to be desired. So you mentioned uh, the issue of alliance formation. Why 
do countries form military alliances? And I guess I need to be clear as to what I mean by military alliance at this point, because I think um, there's some looseness in how we talk about these things, especially in uh, the press, where any sort of relationship seems to fit um, this definition. I think we need to distinguish uh, between security uh, relationships uh, by way of um, emphasizing that certain one, uh, certain relationships uh, have a treaty component to them. And so in the book, I argue that a military alliance is an arrangement by two or more sovereign states on the basis of a written agreement, typically a treaty, that aims to uh, set their parameters of military cooperation in view of at least one shared threat. We can disagree on various aspects of this definition. Uh, I just think, however, it's very important to emphasize the notion of a written treaty, because otherwise, if we say any alignment is an alliance, then we risk a Pandora's box, as it were, of measurement problems. Would we characterize, for example, Sweden and Finland's alignment with NATO as an alliance, even though they're not party of NATO? I don't think that'd be necessarily accurate. So as regards to this issue of formation, one standard argument, not made by all, to be sure, but made by enough people, is that alliances are formed when states wish to balance military power and or to gain influence over others. And this perspective has a lot going for it. It's very intuitive, and it seems to account for a lot of cases. However, I think the basic issue here is twofold. For one, it overpredicts how many alliances we should see. Indeed, there are a number of cases where we can observe countries having a shared interest to balance power, but they choose not to have a written treaty. Russia and China these days immediately comes to mind to that effect. And I think, again, it's important to emphasize that treaties are not random. States take time to negotiate these things. And so they have intrinsic importance as a result. And so it's important to um, to highlight that there's something about the written aspects of that treaty that make it important for alliance. So on the one hand, yes, these traditional understandings of alliance formation overpredict, but on the other hand, they also neglect how some sets of countries do write down these treaties, do take the time to write down the terms and conditions that characterize them, as well as to shepherd them through their domestic legislative procedures. So I know that is, it is a very unsatisfying answer, but basically I think the best conclusion one can draw from surveying the literature on alliance formation is that really there's no one factor or set of factors that neatly predict alliance formation. I don't want to say that it's all randomness and chaos as to what drives alliance formation, but I think we just need to be a little more humble to... Um, and observe that we'll never really identify those conditions ever. And, and that's okay, because after all, like I said earlier, military alliances are unique creatures in international politics precisely because they involve the use of force or the potential use of force under conditions of international anarchy. And there are some issues that are... Um commonly um, put forward whenever um, alliances are being considered, whenever they're being maintained, um, which would be entrapment, 
um, abandonment and burden sharing. Um, and can you kind of first explain how nations address the concern of entrapment within military alliances? Sure. So typically in the alliance literature, alliance, alliance entrapment, that is to say the notion that uh, a country will be dragged into a conflict of some variety against its interest because it provided a security commitment to another country and that recipient country behaves more aggressively than it otherwise would. That notion of entrapment is very common and it's sort of seen as um, operating um, in a manner that is opposite to another fear that is common, so to speak, in alliance politics. That is to say, abandonment. And so entrapment and abandonment are two of the same coins, uh, two sides of the same coin. So the general understanding is that if you offer a very broad commitment to an ally, then that ally might, like I said, behave much more aggressively than it otherwise would because it's shielded from the costs of its own actions. However, the dilemma arises because if you narrow down that commitment in view of that entrapment risk, then that recipient ally becomes very nervous that indeed it will not receive the support that it wants vis-a-vis the adversary that it has. And so that is the dilemma. That is the classic alliance dilemma that Glenn Snyder identifies in his excellent 1997 book, Alliance Politics. However, I think though, there are several issues that we need to consider here. Firstly, we often see entrapment and abandonment exist simultaneously on the part of an ally. That is to say that allies worry about being entrapped by their partners as well as being abandoned by their partners at once. West Germany in the 1950s is a case in point. South Korea during the Trump administration is another case in point. Secondly, I think the... um, understanding of an alliance dilemma overstates its case. Even Glenn Snyder himself has said that if you have an ally, an ally who that is worried about being abandoned, or pardon me, that might pose to be an entrapment risk, uh, one solution is to actually provide an even stronger commitment to assuage its own concerns. So indeed, the opposite of what the alliance dilemma would have you believe. And indeed, I think Glenn Snyder's work is actually very rich in detail to, to the point that um, that richness often gets overlooked. That sort of points to uh, how the alliance dilemma might not be as intractable as often considered. And indeed, with respect to those concerns about entrapment and abandonment, for that matter, uh, there are tools that states can use. So with respect to entrapment, countries can design the alliance treaty in a certain way to give themselves wiggle room. They can offer or impose conditions on the uh, ways that would trigger the alliance in the first place. So they could have geographical uh, restrictions um, that would preclude certain conflict areas being considered for an alliance. This was germane in the case of NATO when, indeed, uh, American decision makers did not want to be fighting European colonial wars. And so they uh, restricted the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, to a particular regional ambit, indeed, the North Atlantic, and it's clearly demarcated in the text of that treaty. Or you can just say that 
um, the alliance commitment will only be activated if in the event of a clear uh, attack um, uh, made by an external adversary. The USRK alliance has this flavor. You can also use the alliance treaty to say that uh, certain contingencies fall outside of it. So things that might we might consider today as gray zone or hybrid uh, might be excluded by design from an alliance treaty precisely because these ambiguities might create undue pressure for a country to back up its alliance commitment. And with respect to abandonment, beyond common interests being potentially a reason for not caring so much about abandonment, because if you're allies of the same mindset as you, then perhaps you don't worry so much about abandonment. You could still resort to various tools like inter-alliance consultations, um, military forward uh, deployments that could signal skin in the game, uh, that also raise the cost of the adversary to um, so that it does not launch an attack, at least um, not without incurring unacceptable costs. So in other words, there are a variety of tools that states can use to manage these entrapment and abandonment risks, so much so that the alliance dilemma is not as intractable as often claimed. And you also argue that, um, if I have this correctly, if you look back through examples in history, um, this dual concern of entrapment and abandonment happens less frequently than is concerned about. That it's more worried about than it is a reality that occurs. Right. So I think abandonment concerns tend to be constant. An ally will always worry about being abandoned. Why? Because it's simply rational to have those concerns because of the anarchic features of the international system that we talked about earlier. That being said, and this is a point I also made in my previous book, Atomic Assurance, there is variability in abandonment concerns in terms of their salience. Sometimes they're high, sometimes they're outrageously high, such that a state undertakes decisions that are fairly radical, whether it is a complete overhaul of its foreign policy, perhaps it is uh, deciding to reach some sort of uh, accommodation with its adversary, for example, or in some cases in the Cold War, as we have seen, to seek uh, independent nuclear weapons capability. But very rarely do abandonment concern rise to that occasion. They're there for sure. And, and entrapment concerns are there too. I, again, I don't want to dismiss the salience of these concerns, but precisely because decision makers have entrapment concerns, they take steps to minimize them. And in, in so many ways, it becomes a self-denying prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how have these um, concerns um, of entrapment and abandonment, how have they changed um, in context of the 21st century, if at all, um, compared to, um, in, to in the past? I think one major technological change that has perhaps provoked more alarm about abandonment is the nuclear revolution, specifically the advent of nuclear weapons, whereby the cost of warfare is so high that an ally might simply believe that it's just better off to uh, remain on the sidelines and not come to the aid 
of its treaty ally, precisely because nuclear war is just that horrific. And so the states know this, and so they're de- they make more demands for assurance measures to placate their own concerns that indeed their fellow allies have skin in the game in the event of a conflict. Uh, and so we've seen this again in the Cold War. Now, there is a question these days about other technologies like cyber. And indeed, there have been calls to adjust the threshold for conflict that would precipitate, let's say, the invocation of Article 5 in the Washington Treaty of NATO. But I think the concern there is that however you adjust up or down the threshold of conflict, and so Article 5, you'll never really entirely get rid of these concerns. In fact, it might make them worse because you might create expectations of support if you say that a particular type of cyber attack might elicit alliance support, when really that might not be the case, precisely because at the end of the day, in the case of NATO, for instance, the decision to support an ally is a political one, and different countries that are members of the same alliance might simply have different views as to what to do or uh, how, or different theories for how the conflict broke out, such that they might not feel so willing to support an ally under duress. And uh, just as those concerns about um, joining um, an ally in conflict is political, so is so has burden sharing increasingly been politicized, um, and. Why do these issues of burden sharing arise in the first place among allies? Um, And what are some strategies for um, military allies to address burden sharing? I think burden sharing is a fascinating issue because it doesn't really make any sense. So one of the pieces of conventional wisdom that I address in my book is this notion that American allies must do more to bear their fair share of the collective Uh, defense burden. And there's a lot going for that idea. And to be sure, I don't want to imply that countries that are members of NATO who who have been derelict in their defense spending pledges, you know, have an excuse now, having read my book, not to spend more on their militaries. I I don't want that to be the implication of my book. That being said, what's very interesting to me is that burden sharing debates really are a phenomenon that we have seen arise in the 1950s. Sure, there's some discussion of burn sharing beforehand, but really it's an American-led problem that seems to have really come about early in the Cold War. And I think it's because of changes in military technology in part. Before the Second World War, the average alliance would not really last more than 10 years. I don't have the precise number, but there was a definite deadline to those alliances. They They didn't tend to last very long. You can think of Bismarck's alliances and how um, he negotiated them and renegotiated them and and how some of them simply just um, ended for whatever reason. But now we have a situation where military alliances strive to deter adversaries from attacking. Indeed, in the mid-1940s, strategist Bernard Brody said himself that the chief purpose of military establishments is not to fight wars, but to, but to essentially engage in deterrence. And, and the advent of nuclear weapons more or less prompted him to, to make that point. And so with nuclear weapons, with nuclear deterrence being operative, military alliances become much more enduring. 
And so we have this fascinating situation develop where military technology becomes more and more complex, whether it's because of the actual technology itself, they have more component parts, uh, they require higher and higher levels of industrialization and know-how, as well as competence and a stronger defense industrial base, or organizational issues, like how do you integrate these technologies, or even issues relating to human capital. You need to have individuals capable of using these platforms in a, you know, a hostile environment, no less. Um, that puts a premium on sustaining military investments over a long-term period. Otherwise, these capabilities will atrophy. And so you have that incentive to maintain these sorts of investments. However, if you really believe in the power of nuclear deterrence, that major power war is unthinkable because it would result in nuclear destruction and annihilation of human civilization, and as such, we have stability at the highest strategic levels, then you might think that, in fact, the necessity of major military investments are no longer needed. Of course, there are other reasons to have military power than to fight a great power war. You might want to engage in expeditionary uh, missions and so forth. But that was at least a hangup that some in West Germany had in the 1960s, where they felt that if they were to make investments in military power, given the strategic balance, and more to the point, the condition of mutually assured destruction brought on by both the United States and the Soviet Union having survivable second strike capabilities, then building up military power might actually inadvertently send a signal that you're willing to start a war and that you might think that uh, nuclear war is winnable, which can be destabilizing. And so as much as it might seem to be very reasonable to think that buying more, spending more on military power is good for the collective defense burden, if you have a different theory as to how these things relate to one another, then it might actually be destabilizing and therefore you're undercutting the collective defense burden because you're putting a, uh, a premium on setting uh, reassurance signals, which might be very difficult to do in this sort of context. Of course, not everyone would agree with that. There's you know, plenty of disagreement as to um, things like the security dilemma and how acute they are and so forth. But it just goes to show that the relationship between spending money on your defense establishment and the collective defense burden, on the other hand, is not exactly linear. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I, as, as, you, um, as you pointed out, it, uh, it seems as though in terms of the, the United States, it is truly an investment. Um, and 
just as burden, just as entrapment and abandonment are also these fickle things that aren't linear and can change over time. So is um, the necessity for um, like balancing burden and and such. Is that correct? If a country like the United States is indeed worried about entrapment, then having stronger allies might not necessarily be a benefit because those might pose greater entrapment risks. So, so again, that, that just goes to show the complexity of the issues involved, that relationships between key concepts that are operative in the world of military alliances are hardly clear-cut and linear. And if uh, military alliances do again, eventually get drawn into conflict, um, what are some of the decisions that um, alliances make about whether or not they they join their their defenders? Sure, it's a it's a great question, and I don't actually think we really truly have a, a very satisfactory answer to it. Now, there is political science literature that deals with this question about what is the rate of allies abiding by their commitments and participating in wars. But the decision to go to war is in some ways very much driven by parameters that we don't really quite understand ourselves. You can argue that uh, because war is very rare and very costly, there is no one set of conditions or factors that can neatly predict uh, when a country would go to war, let alone a group of countries would go to war. And so a lot of the data that we have on these sorts of questions is driven by uh, selection effects that we don't quite understand. We don't understand necessarily the stages of selection by which countries choose to escalate from a crisis into a war. And so there are some unknowns, and, and the literature has struggled with this question. Now, to be sure, that's not to say that our understandings are completely impoverished here. There's been terrific work on how the United States, for example, builds multinational coalitions. Uh, Marina Henke wrote a terrific book uh, a few years ago on this very question. It's actually one of my favorite books in international relations that's appeared as of late, in which she argues that there is some horse training that goes on whereby countries do bargain with one another in order to determine um, their reservation prices and what they're interested in so that they can be co-opted into joining a coalition. Now, this brings us to another piece of conventional wisdom that I think is a bit difficult, um, pardon me, not difficult, but um, a bit misleading uh, but nevertheless, it's very common, and that's this idea that military alliances simply aggregate capabilities and so allow for more effective war fighting when war does indeed break out. And again, I have to be careful here because it's better to fight with allies than not to fight with allies in most cases. You know, the, the Baltic countries would say this right now, and indeed the present crisis on Ukraine uh, concerns this very question, to say nothing of uh, Taiwan and its want of an alliance uh, with the United States. But one thing that's very peculiar is that if we look at actual war fighting or coalition warfare, because it's really coalitions that fight wars, not military alliances as such, um, we see them undermined by various independents along the way, be it different war aims that 
members of the coalition might have, the organizational uh, structures um, that guide uh, the war fight, uh, fighting process, meaning the command control structures that um, try to organize the, um, uh, the effort to the more mundane technical factors like uh, whether these allies are fighting in an interoperable manner, whether they're using the same equipment, same weapons, uh, they can rely on the same stocks and supplies, whether they can even talk to one another uh, using the same language or just be on the same frequency uh, on radio. All these impediments very much come into play. And so I think it's important to not see these alliances necessarily as successful because they aggregate um, capabilities in these sorts of contingencies, but because of how they employ force when the going gets rough. So what what is it then that makes these military alliances effective um, in conflict or makes them um, have a better ability to um, cooperate with one another? Well, ideally, you would have an alliance or really, like I said, a coalition guided by the same war aims that they have a unified command control structure such that uh, the chain of command is very clear so that you don't need to have overlapping um, uh, authorities or lines of authority grant approval for any particular mission set that they rely on the same uh, supply chains uh, that they use the same weapons more or less although this point can be exaggerated to be sure but that they are essentially interoperable on the battlefield of course in practice we see warfighting coalitions depart from this ideal and in some ways that explains why they have so much difficulty in finishing the war on favorable terms. And you stated earlier, um, shifting towards the end of an alliance's life, you mentioned earlier that alliances used to last um, for a much shorter amount of time than they currently do. Um, how how did um, allies get how did nations get out of alliances in the past and how, how, how do they get out of them today? If you look at the text of particular treaties signed by states to form alliances in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they actually have fairly defined and limited um, timeframes, five, 10 years sometimes, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But what we've seen, especially after the First World War, is for these sorts of commitments to take on more indefinite timeframes. And so look, if you look at NATO, for instance, it's fairly open-ended in terms of its timeframe. The Warsaw Treaty Organization, or the Warsaw Pact, uh, actually was a little more precise in, in its language about alliance termination, but even so, it tied its fate with that of NATO. But what we've seen is this recognition, I suppose, that wars are going to be longer and perhaps nastier, that deterrence is going to be much more essential for preserving the peace. And because deterrence is hard and requires a lot of investment, it makes little sense to put very sharp timeframes on them. And um, so are military alliances 
different in the 21st century? Are they changing conceptually or is it just kind of more conventional wisdom it is being um, more re-examined and kind of built upon? It's a great question. So my frustration with the current literature has been that it 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 draws too much on one book. And that book is Glenn Snyder's Alliance Politics, which was written in 1997. That's not that long ago. However, the historical examples that he uses are drawn almost entirely from the period before the First World War. A lot of things have happened since, not least uh, the emergence of the modern system of warfare, to say nothing of nuclear weapons and the emerging technologies that were, you know, we're busy talking about these days, like cyber and so forth. I think there are some continuities over time as to how these military alliances operate, to be sure. Entrapment risks and abandonment concerns exist today as, as back then. And you can go read your Thucydides and find echoes of these sorts of concerns too. So there are these basic continuities that exist over time. But it is also true that since the Second World War, as we've said already, these alliances are more enduring. They actually adopt vaguer language in terms of the conditions that characterize their founding texts. Mir Rappooper's dissertation is very good on this score. She shows that after 1945, alliance promises actually become more vague than not. And so I think that, again, speaks to how the nature of warfare has shifted so that there's a lot more ambiguity as to what actually prompts uh, an alliance being um, triggered and what really counts as deterrent success. And so as such, there is more of a premium for having these organizations be as robust and as resilient as possible against a wide set of contingencies, perhaps an even wider set of contingencies than envisioned by some of the planners. Because I think even NATO, it started out as a threadbare organization that was largely based on the text of the treaty and little more. But after the Korean War, and literally that began one year um, following the signing of the Washington Treaty, military planners and political leaders felt that much more needed to be done precisely to head off these sorts of situations. So I think there has been a profound shift. It is difficult to articulate exactly what that shift is, but I think that's the ambiguity with which we need to wrestle. And I worry that some of our understandings of alliance politics is a little too anchored in what had happened in the 19th and early 20th century. The cases that inspired Glenn Snyder to write is otherwise very excellent and very seminal book. I think we need to appreciate that complexity and that ambiguity a bit more. And that's why basically the main argument of military alliances in the 21st century is that these are organizations that are ambiguous, complex, and paradoxical in how they operate. And as such, controversies are going to be very normal. And so as much as we see alliances dominate the headlines, I think that is... Um, a testament to their true nature. We should not necessarily be surprised by that. 
Well, uh, Assistant Professor Lenoska, we've taken up a lot of your time for today. So finally, um, I would like to ask you, where are you off to next? What are you working on as your next project? Uh, I, I'm currently wrapping up some smaller papers on uh, issues relating to Central and Eastern Europe. I hope to do a book project on the French alliance system, as it were, in the interwar period. Uh, but that's going to be a, a fairly long-term project that will probably take me at least five years, if not more, to do. Uh, so please don't wait for that to happen because you might be waiting a long time. But uh, I'm still planning on working in this space. I think, though, there's a lot uh, that needs to be said. And my book is certainly not the last word. Really, I, I just wanted to um, synthesize a lot of what we know already in terms of the state of the art uh, to make new arguments and hopefully uh, to inspire uh, future research. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, you do so very, um, very straightforward and you do it very elegantly. And so thank you very much um, for your book. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for being here today. And thank you for our listeners for joining us for our discussion of Assistant Professor Alexander Lanoska's new book entitled Military Alliances in the 21st Century, which was recently published by the Polity Press. Bye for now.